today we're going to wrap up our walk through the book of Ecclesiastes. First couple announcements. Uh, tonight at 5, we're getting together here in the sanctuary to have a time of um, prayer. And we're going to pray for lots of stuff. Pray for God's will to be done in some people's lives and pray for people who are on the mission field and pray for our church to have a place to really sink our spiritual teeth into and the mission field itself and just lots of stuff to pray for. So we have a, a time of prayer and then we're also going to have sprinkled in there some time of sharing. Some people are going to share their testimony, some places where God has been moving and we're even going to have an interview. So I'll be playing the role of Jimmy Fallon, but I will not be singing. Thank you. Amen and amen. Um, so please come back for, at 5 and we'll have that time here together in the sanctuary. And then at 6 we're going to have a chili eat-off. Because it's not really a cook-off, right? Because it doesn't matter whose is best or anything, but mine's pretty great. But I'm not telling you which one because I don't want you to judge me. I don't know, anyway. But um, how many, they, they asked me to, to kind of pull the audience. We had, there's six people bringing chili from the first service. How many of you guys are bringing chili? One, two, three, four. Okay, if we run out, we'll order pizza. Okay, so uh, it'll be great. And you, if you'll be doing sample bites, right, Dixie cup size. No, that's not how we roll. You put chili in front of us, we all eat bowls of it. It's going to be great. Um, I will warn you all, I don't know if there's prizes or not, but Brad Walbauer is making some chili. That man can cook. And I think it's going to be like smoked meats. Oh, there are prizes? Yes. Yes. Okay. I might need to doctor mine up this afternoon, add some more bacon fat, and make it better. <laughs> bacon, it's, there's bacon ice cream. Bacon always causes winners, doesn't it? Okay. A couple other announcements besides that. Operation Christmas, shoebox chi- or Operation Christmas Child Shoeboxes are due, um, and they're due by the, what's the last day to collect? The 6th. So we need, you got a week. So there's a few boxes left over here. Um, the, a group of people came together and packed 50 boxes. And so we have these here and the 50 that have been packed that are stuck over there. And we got a few boxes over there. We're trying to hit a goal of a hundred. So if you've been, um, you've got a box, if you've had a box at home and thinking about it, then you've got a week. So this is your week. So get busy. I mean, hurry and blessing a child with the gospel, right? Um, that's where they go. We don't know exactly where you don't know exactly where each box is going to go, but if you pay the money and you get the tracking number, you know exactly where it goes, and you can see. Um, if you've been around the shoebox ministry for a while, there's a great blessing that happens when these boxes land. Um, most times, there's a local church pastor that then has a class for kids before they can get it, and they um, they are able to get an opportunity to hear the gospel. Then they get their box, and so it's kind of a it's a pretty neat thing. And if you go on their website to Samaritan. Samaritan Ministries or Samaritan Purse, sorry, Samaritan's Purse, and you go to Operation Christmas Child, you can see all these kids from all over the world that came to a saving faith in Jesus because of the stuff that people packed. So just remember that. There's lots of stuff going on um, in the life of the church on the front of the bulletin. Decorating the church, when Advent begins, Thanksgiving Day. Um, If you are going to come for a Thanksgiving meal on the 13th, we have a big blow-up. Like the chairs, it's, it's awesome chaos. When second service is over, the chairs get pushed all around, tables get thrown in, chairs are thrown around, and we have a meal. And it's pretty amazing. And if you plan on coming, we would appreciate an RSVP. There's little yellow pieces of paper there you can throw in the basket, just so we know how much turkey to cook. Because um, I, I always want to double it, so there's plenty of leftovers for me, but then you don't get any. So we need to make sure that we have plenty of turkey for everyone. Okay? Lots going on. So, let's pray. And we'll jump into Ecclesiastes um, chapter 12. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks again for this day. And thank you for all the ways in which this church is a blessing to so many in our community and around the world. And I pray that that would be um, part of the heartbeat of every person here. That we're not just coming to church to be selfishly served, but we're here um, to be equipped to serve others. We see that from the beginning of the promise to Abraham that the people of God will be a blessing to the world. And we continue in that call today. So help us, Lord. Help us to see that. We love you. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 kind of wraps up with a, a closing proclamation. He sums up the entire book, which is always nice when an author in the Bible actually tells you what's going on. Because sometimes I think we all read it and go, I don't, what? Obadad, what was he saying? I don't know. Right? But what it does is it helps us to see, like, what's the main point? 
Now, we can do that through diligent study. We can do it through reading through the Scripture over and over again, but it's always kind of nice when the author just gives it to you. Kind of like when Jesus tell, teaches a parable, and then in a couple of verses or a couple of paragraphs later, he explains it to you. You're like, oh, thank you. I'm a simple man, and I appreciate the explanation, Jesus. Well, that's what Solomon's doing. He's giving us the close, the wrap-up of what... So my Bible has the title in this section, Fear God and Keep His Commandments. We could just say we're done and go home. But that'd be my shortest sermon ever, and I've been not, I'm not known for that. So we'll continue. Um, he he's starts off by saying, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. So this is the author, Solomon, is saying the preacher. He's calling himself the preacher, which that sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Well, the preacher, well, like people say that, but you don't like say it about yourself. I am the preacher. That's kind of a, right? But what... A preacher, to preach or to teach, is to herald the good news. So he's saying the herald, the, the one with the megaphone, the one, the biggest cheerleader, the biggest one who's going to proclaim the name of God, that's who he's calling himself. He's trying to say, it's really a, a term of humbleness, saying that I am the one proclaiming God. I have nothing else except that proclamation. But that sometimes gets a little hokey, doesn't it? Well, I'm the preacher of the word. Well, of course you are. And I think what happens is a lot of times in our culture, especially in Western culture in the last 60, 70 years, we think that anybody that's a preacher, well, that's what you get paid to do. You really believe this stuff because that's your job. You don't believe it because it's necessarily always true, because if you would just read the right things and watch the right things, you wouldn't think that way, but you're stuck and you want to put food on your table, so you're going to keep saying this stuff. If you just had the guts to push away all that old thinking that you had, then you would come to the truth. And you would stop that. There's a kind of consensus in our society that if we just wait long enough, then we'll all be on the right side of history, right? That's kind of what we see happening all across the culture. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. There was a pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones, known as the Good Doctor. He died in the 60s, I believe. Um, he was a pastor in England. He was a medical doctor. He was a surgeon. And so he was studying to be a surgeon. He was in a school... in the he was in Edinburgh, I believe. I could be wrong. But he was studying, he was being mentored, and he was in research with all these doctors. And they were going through all of the hospitals. He was a brilliant man, brilliant at logic, and figuring out what's going on with people. Um, he himself had seen his family kind of dissolve under alcoholism, and so he had this passion to help people come to health. He wanted people to be well. He wanted families to be intact. And as he studied in this hospital, uh, he came to the conclusion that he needed to be a preacher of the word. So he went to medical school, he's a surgeon, and he decides in the midst of it all that what people really need, what people really need is God. And he deduced that about 70% of the people in the hospital, and he was dealing with a lot of emotional and um, kind of social issues in the hospital. It wasn't like, he wouldn't say, well, you're having a heart attack, we're just going to pray. We're not going to do CPR, we're not going to do these things. I'll pray while I work on you, but I still, there's some techniques. He was saying that a lot of the people in the hospital really didn't need to be there if they had a groundedness in something bigger than themselves. So he became known as the good doctor. And so he said preaching was logic on fire. Um, so he was asked, what is preaching? Logic on fire. Eloquent reason. Are these contradictions? Of course they are not. So I think there's too much of a belief that when you come to church, I have to leave my academic my intellectual abilities at the door because I have to go believe this hokey stuff like people raising from the dead and a divine being who's making it all. I've got to leave all that outside because that's not really going to make sense. So I have to come in here. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago Stephen Hawking, um, a well-noted astrophysicist, right? Like the guy's pretty smart, we would all agree. Um, I think he's been known to be a bit of a jerk, but he's a smart guy. He will not budge from his atheism because he will not believe in a supreme being or a God. He cannot do it. He will not do it. But in the last couple of weeks, something came out that was very interesting. Um, China has created a brand new radio telescope. I don't know if you know this or not. You probably don't care. I'm the only nerd in the room that knows. And they're able to go deeper into space, broadcasting um, messages deeper into space than ever before. And Stephen Hawking said... Please don't do that. Turn it off. Because if you contact intelligent life, they're going to come and kill us all. Right? So here's a guy who refuses to believe in a supreme being, but he's well 
versed in his belief of alien activity. And here's where it comes from. When he boiled down science to its nth degree, you get to a place of, well, how did all this happen? And so he, in his brilliant mind, has come to the conclusion that there is no real answer from a goo or ooze or all these things. So there had to be something created at all. But he cannot come to the place that God exists. So instead, we believe aliens seeded the planet. Right? So I will not believe in a supreme being or a god. I'll believe in aliens that came and seeded the planet. Have you seen the movie? I think it was called The Red Planet or Mars or something. Gary Sinise is in it. That's the whole premise of the entire book or the whole movie. You think you're watching a sci-fi? That is the premise of a lot of intellectual scientific people that I cannot come to the conclusion that God made this place because that would mean I would have to obey the word. I'd have to like my logic and reason means if God made it, then this must be his word then I must follow. I don't want to do that. So instead, aliens made us. Now, I'm kind of a sci-fi guy, so like that would be cool too. No, it wouldn't. It's unbiblical and it's not God. And so what I'm trying to get you to see is you don't have to throw your logic out the window. You don't throw your brain out the window to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's perfectly logical. And even in some of the issues that we have as a society, um, there's a guy named Peter Kreft, who's a professor of classic literature in, at Columbia University in New York. And he's written two books, Socrates Meets Jesus and The Unaborted Socrates. And so he takes just the Socratic method, because he's a Greek classics scholar. He's also a believer an evangelical believer in Jesus Christ. So he takes his same training in classics and in Greek um, understanding and thinking, and he applies it to the common practices we see. Well, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, and I know that whole cross thing, but there's some parts of the scripture. I'm not one of those Christians that tells people they should follow the Bible. I'm not one of those Christians. And so he just, he writes a book, and he drops Socrates in the middle of a college campus, and he says, hey, uh, what do you think about this Jesus thing? And who's this guy? Like, well, you know, some people say that he's the only way to heaven, but I'm not one of those Christians. Well, what did this guy you believe in, what he say? Well, he said he's the only way to heaven. Then you don't believe in the guy that you say you believe in? Well, so you're saying he's a, he just follows the logic, just the Socratic method. Goes all the way through in, you know, a, the case of abortion. Like, how could this be logical? Just not putting Bible, throwing it, but using logic and reason. How is it logical that we have 13,000 partial birth abortions in this country a year, kids that were viable at 21, 22 weeks? How is that even logical? How's that even, why would you, how's that even logical? And so he just breaks it down. Just go, so you can use logic and reason to come to Scripture. And that's what Solomon's getting at. He says, besides being wise, moreover, the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. So what is the role of a pastor? It's to dig in to the scriptures. It's to look intelligently and deeply and to teach people knowledge. To seek it out, to go after it. That's our, that's our goal as pastors and preachers. But that turns into a message for you. How often do you have someone who comes to you with answers. They seek your wisdom. You've lived this much of life. You've done this in life. You have this going on in life. You have these things happening in life, right? Like these are the things that you're dealing with. These are the things that I've seen happen in your life. Can you help me with this? They seek your wisdom. And then you help and respond with the truth and the word of God. Don't you? Like you're going to respond with that. If you just give your opinion... We all know the, all the phrase we say about opinions, that everybody has one and just like all kinds of other things, right? We all know those. If it's just your opinion, not backed with facts or not backed with word or not backed with hope and compassion, then they're just getting, it's just gossip, isn't it? And so Solomon's saying, we should seek out the word of God. We should dig into it. We should dig in and go for it. Now that doesn't mean that you have to have a seminary degree. This isn't a study Bible. If you get one, a basic study Bible, there's an NIV version, this, the NIV MacArthur study Bible that has all of John MacArthur's study notes in the bottom. I prefer the ESV study Bible. It's the one I really like. If you have an ESV study Bible, you have pretty much a, a good foundation, almost a seminary level good foundation of knowledge right in one book, of the, one, book one version of the Bible. There's all kinds of stuff online. Now, that gets scary. 
If you're reading Wikipedia more than a commentary, then that's not okay. Um, my favorite is the expositor's commentary. I mean, I'm a pretty smart guy, not in an arrogant way. I think I can, I'm an intelligent man. Maybe more intelligent than I really think I am, but I am. But I have to look at all these tools. I have to look at all these resources. I don't know. Like last week, people came up to me after the sermon last week. I didn't know the grinders and the windows. That's great. I never saw that in God's Word before. I'm like, yeah, I read it in a book. I didn't know that either. But isn't that our job? We dig in. You do due diligence. You study. And the last several weeks, a lot of guys have, I've talked to different guys, whether it was some guys in San Diego and some guys here, to where they're not very good readers. They don't like to read. And that's okay. Um, you have other ways of getting at God's Word. You could use audible.com and listen to books when you're driving around. I mean, is there really anything good or worth listening to on the radio anyway? Does anybody listen to the radio anymore anyway? There's not that much on Spotify or iTunes music. There's some stuff, but I'm not saying don't listen to music. But if you're wanting to know, if you have a passion for God's Word, then you can find either a Bible, audio version, but even that gets a little boring. Can we just admit that? Like I'm listening to a CD or an audio version of the Word of God and I'm still not getting it because it's still the Word of God. It's hard to understand. Well, there's about a million different podcasts out there of pastors that will help you teach, help you understand the Word of God. I always point people to John MacArthur, Matt Chandler, John Piper. I don't know any other Johns. Um, you can listen to J.D. Greer. Our men's study on Tuesdays has been watching a J.D. Greer series on Ephesians. Like the guy talks really fast. You think I talk fast? He talks really fast. But man, every time we watch these 10 minutes of him breaking down a piece of Ephesians, it's like your mind's just been blown. Okay, you don't, so even if you don't, if you're just listening to the word is hard for you, you can find some good people to teach it to you. But the point is you've got to seek after God's word. You've got to dig into God's word. You have to find, be, put yourself in a place where you're going to study the word. Because people want to know not just your opinion, they want it backed with some truth. They don't want just your life experience. They want it backed with some reason from God. He continues, The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. He found some acceptable... That's kind of my job, is to take the word of God and put it into terms that are acceptable, that you can understand. I mean, that's my job as a, as a pastor. My job isn't to give you a seminary education. Newspapers in this country are written at an 8th grade level. This town has a high level of bachelor's degree recipients, but my job isn't to do an academic class. We don't have to have consistent lectures on Christology. We don't have to have those. We don't have to study the five solas every week. We don't have to go through Reformed theology. We don't have to study Calvin's Institutes every week. Like that's not, we don't have to do that. It's my job is to make God's word somewhat more palatable for an audience, for more people. Now that can be a group like this or it can be a group in a Bible study. And so he's saying, that's your job. As someone who's going to teach people about the Word of God, in your small groups, in your job, in your relationships, in your families, you have to make it palatable. You have to make it so they can see it, they can hear it, they can understand it. So why do you think I put Martin Lloyd-Jones up there? Do you guys even care who he is? Did you know who he was before I put him up there? You can say no, it's okay, it won't hurt my feelings. I'm like one of the few Bible nerds in the room that probably knows him. Chris Floyd in the first service loves Martin Lloyd-Jones. I always go up three notches in his eyes whenever I mention his name. Why did I do that? Well, because I was trying to connect logic to reason and the Word of God. So if you get nothing from anything I'm going to say today, you're out of God's Word, you can go, well, there's a guy who was a doctor and there's logic, and I, I don't have to walk out of here thinking i got to check my brain at the door. Well, that's my way of trying to take what Solomon is saying here, and the preacher sought to find out acceptable words. How do I make that relate? Well, I bring up a guy who did it. Isn't that what we do in all kinds of cases? Isn't that every story, whether I should be sharing them or not sharing them? Isn't that what every one of those is for? To try to make it relate to what God's done in my life to you, so it's not just me reading the Word. We could do that. That'd be an awesome service some Sunday. Just like stand up here and read the entire book of Ephesians and just pray and leave. I think that'd be pretty powerful. That happened at Passion one year. There's 40,000 college students in a stadium and some people just stood up and read the book of Ephesians for an hour, and then we closed. It was powerful. But we need to make it applicable to our lives, don't we? So, and then he says, that was rich and was upright, even words of truth. I don't know a greater statement to be made about the word of God. 
that it's upright and true. That's a pretty glowing endorsement of the Word of God. The Chicago Stable on Hermeneutics was written in 82. A bunch of evangelical churches came together and said, we need to have some statements because there was all these things splintering and breaking in the church and the church global. We need to have a statement that we can all sink into. And this was their statement. Hermeneutics is the seminary term that essentially means take, putting it in context. It just means you take a 2,000-year-old text and you put it in modern context. That's hermeneutics. We affirm the only type of preaching which sufficiently conveys the divine revelation and its proper application is the life... Sorry, I shouldn't have paused there. A proper application of life is that which faithfully expounds the text of Scripture as the Word of God. We deny that the preacher has any message from God apart from the text of Scripture. So say I'm really not that smart. And a whole bunch of smarter people got together and said, preachers aren't that smart. Your one job is to open up the Word. That's your job. That's your only mission. And so you have to be careful when people start saying, well, I read this in the Bible... I know the Bible says this, but I believe this. Mm, warning bells. Now, if people say, I've read the word, I've studied, and I know that a lot of people think this, but my reading of the word leads to this. That's a whole different thing. That's someone who's in process, someone who's putting God's word first, who's praying about God's word, and they've come to a conclusion They've come to see that what God's word is saying is this, and you might disagree with them, but they're not just saying, you know what, my Bible's been collecting dust over there for two years, but I, I've heard enough sermons in my life. This is the truth, what I'm saying to you. Like, whoa. I love conversations about, like, deep conversations about a piece of scripture, an issue, something that I might have wrong. If you come to me and say, Mike, I don't agree with this, I don't know about this, and we discuss it, we'll pray about it, we'll read it intently, we'll go after it, and then we come to the conclusion that I was wrong, then I'll admit I'm wrong, that I've misinterpreted this. But if you come to me and say, Mike, I know this is what it says, but I just can't believe it, so I'm going to choose this way, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And it's hard because it's people's lives. It's people's hearts. Nope, I've never had anybody come to me just to want to fight over something. They've usually come because it's a passage of Scripture that's had an immediate impact on their lives, families' lives. People have been hurt by people misinterpreting it. People have been challenged or bullied because of a piece of Scripture. It's never just they want to have an intellectual fight. And so when you see people that are opening up the Word, they don't want to hear just your opinion. They want to hear what God has to say. They don't want to hear just opinion. So when you're in that midst of counseling someone, if someone comes to me and says, hey, um, I'm really struggling with my kids. How do you do it? Well, I, don't, I can't just give them, well, here's all the lists we do. What if they came to me and said, you know, I've been really struggling with my kids, and so I think I'm doing okay. Could you just tell me if I'm okay with this? Um, whenever they do something wrong, I scream and yell at them, and I throw things at them. And then when I finally catch them, I chain them to something so they can't go anywhere. Is that okay? And I can go, um, no. I'm calling the police on you right now. We could do that. But if they're asking as a pastor, they're probably coming after some biblical ideal. So I'm going to drive them to Colossians, chapter 3. Or is it 4? In Colossians, I believe it's 3. And I'm going to tell them we're not supposed to leap, we're not supposed to heap coals on our kids. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to push them to a place of frustration. So by you constantly screaming and yelling at them, is not going to get you to a place of they're going to listen. Now, there are times you have to yell. There's times, I mean, as a parent, maybe I'm wrong. There's times you have to say, like, Savannah, stop doing splits on the sink. Get off. Hey, brush your teeth. Like, there's times you have to go, like, what is your problem? You've got to go to school. There's, there's times for that. But most of the time, I'm not just going to try to set them up for failure. Make some rules they can't attain, and then when they don't live up to my expectation, then crush them. The Bible's very clear on that. So when someone comes to me, I'll say, well, here's what we do. I don't know if we do it right or not. This is how we parent because I know the biblical truth is I'm not supposed to push my children to frustration. So our discipline goes to a level, but I'm not going to shove them into darkness. That's why. Oh, well, that makes sense, right? There's biblical ideals that speak in to truth and logic. So I thought we could go through a few after this. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my son, be admonished. In making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
So the words of the wise are as goads. Now, you know what it is to goad someone. Uh, it's a term from shepherding and herding. And so if you have a stick, you would poke them to get them to go the right way. Today would be a cattle prod. I'm prodding you with a little, you know, juice. I can get you to move a little faster, right? So wisdom, words of the wiser is goads. They push us. They mold us. They help us go in the right direction. So words of wisdom from God help push us in the correct directions. Then he says, and his nails fastened by the master's assemblies. There's a reason, there's, a, there's an order, there's a construction, there's a basis, there's a truth that's been assembled for us to see and to witness. There's a way for us to see things. He's essentially saying truth exists. In a world which is trying to push truth all to the side, truth exists. Things can be boiled down to truth, which are given from one shepherd, which this is a Christological statement saying the Messiah is the shepherd. So you have Solomon in Ecclesiastes making mention of the Messiah, that he's designed it a certain way. He's given us the word. He's given us conviction of the Holy Spirit, which will goad us. He's given us the way things are supposed to be. Things are designed a certain way. All a good gift from God. It's not total chaos. And then he says, further these, my son, be admonished of making many books. There is no end. There's a lot to read out there. So the challenge is, what he's saying, um, how much time do you spend reading the actual word of God compared to the words of other authors? Now, if you're like me, I said in the first service, I'm like, how do you like to read it this week? How much time am I spending watching television at night compared to reading the word of God? And then no wonder things start coming out of my mouth, like I'm sure do yours, that seem like wisdom from television and not necessarily wisdom from God. Like how often are we like that? Now this isn't supposed to be a sermon of condemnation. Read your Bible 20 hours a day. What's your problem? You stink. Right? That's not really what I'm going for. I tickled him. But we have to understand that we can't figure things out we're not able to figure stuff out, and we call upon God. I don't understand. Why aren't you showing this? Why are you? We have to take a lot of responsibility. That if we're truly seeking answers, we should be looking for those answers. And instead, we just push it to the side and we go about our daily business and we never dig into God's Word to find those answers. This is the truth. And so, if you want to know the truth, you've got to spend time in it. Now, I'm not saying that you. If you're in school, you throw away all of your books and just tell your professor, this is the only book I need, give me an A. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that if you watch something on television, you're an evil person for owning a television, that old sin box in your house. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there should be a balance. That if you are seeking God and you want to be equipped to help people see him, you need to be spending time with him in his word. And it looks different for all of us. It's audiobooks, it's sermon podcasts, it's daily devotionals, it's Bible reading plans, it's all kinds of stuff. Um, there's a whole new in the last year, The Bible Project. It's a video series by, being done by some guys where you can get summaries of whole books of the Bible done in like a YouTube video. It's all animated, like seven minutes long, and they're awesome. If you want overviews of doctrine and theological issues and books of the Bible, they're amazing. They're doctrinally sound and they're amazing. So you don't have to just stumble around in the darkness. But what we're seeing is that Solomon's saying, there's so many books to read, it becomes a weariness of the flesh. For a long time, I know I've shared this before, for a long time I read lots of books about the Bible. I didn't read the Bible. Which I know sounds ridiculous, so you can make fun of me later, but that's what I did. And I got to the place when I'm about 23 years old, 24, teaching high school history, and real antagonistic about the Word of God, and that's when Amber in her wisdom, said, you know, you complain about the Bible a lot and read a lot of books about the Bible. Have you ever actually read it? Which is a guy who's supposed to be his history teacher and looking at primary sources, like, just cut my heart out. And so I did. I went after the scriptures, and I never turned back. I'm like, why am I not, why did I never read this before? How could I go to church for six years of my life, six years of a Christian life, and have never read through the scriptures? That's crazy. I go to church every Sunday and hear it preached, but why didn't I try to read it myself? And as a guy who was supposed to be a social science guy, like you're kind of trained not to trust anyone except read it yourself. Why didn't I read it myself? I honestly believe it's because I didn't want to obey it. 
I was afraid that if I was going to read the Word of God, I'd actually have to start following it. And I was kind of enjoying where I was at, playing games with God. And maybe that's the fear you have. So Solomon's saying it just really wears you out. I have the list of books, audio and not audio, and it's forever long. If I could just have more time to read. Then someone suggests another book. All right, there's another one added to the list. I don't have a virtual, I have a, I have a, whatever. I have a virtual bookshelf now filled with books that need to be read. I don't have an, I used to have an actual bookshelf. Here's all the books I've bought that I couldn't just walk by and not buy them. Here's two shelves worth I need to read. Now they're all just stored on like my phone. It's like a constant reminder. Hey, idiot, you need to read that over and over again. That becomes a weariness, doesn't it? There's so much we wish we could learn. And Solomon's saying, just stick to the word of God. Stick to the word of God. So I thought we could run through a few things. I get this question a lot. When is the end of the world? Especially around election time. (laughs) Now, I don't know if people believe that when a certain person gets elected ends the world or they're praying for the end of the world to happen before the election, but I get both. Especially now. Now, do you guys remember a guy named Jack Van Impey? Some of you older might remember him on television. He was this guy on TV and he would ramble and ramble and ramble about how the world is ending, and here's why. He would quote all these Bible verses. So me being the cynic, I honestly, I was being cynical, but the good social science teacher that I was, I recorded it, and I was teaching the high school Sunday school class at that time, and we would pause it, look up the verses, and see what they actually said, and none of them ever had anything to do with what he was saying. It was awesome. And so you had him predicting the end of the world constantly. So people will ask, like, when do you think the world's going to end? Is it now because, you know, the whole thing for the last 50 years since communism began is that Russia's going to come from the north and seize Israel, and that's going to usher in the end of the world. And then for the last two years, what have we been watching? So there's part of me that's like, man, if he was right and I made fun of him, then I'm, that's, I just can't, I can't fathom that. He can't be right. But that's my arrogance. We should look at that, like, what's the end of the world? Is it going to come? Is it happening now? Is it not now? Who is it? Who? Like, people get so stressed out about this. But I do know for a fact one thing from the Word of God. If someone predicts a date, it's not going to happen. Why? Because Jesus said in Matthew, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So if anyone comes to you and says, I know the world's ending next year, go, thanks for delaying another year, jerk. I was hoping he'd come back. Now you've predicted it, he can't, because he cannot contradict himself. So constantly, when people are fearful, they say it all the time, the world's ending. If Jesus didn't know and the angels don't know, only God knows, how do you think you know? Now we can read the scripture and say there's rumors of war, it seems to get more, I think we all feel this tension growing, but to say that the world's going to end in the next two years, you don't know that. Go read First and, first and Second Thessalonians. And look at a group of people at a little church that did the exact same thing. They stopped having babies. They stopped getting married. They stopped having community with each other because they thought for sure the world was going to end. Jesus was coming back, so why even bother? That's 2,000 years ago. We're all still here. Paul wrote a letter to them and corrected them and said, you've got to keep living life. You don't know when it's going to happen. You've got to live life and live life for the kingdom. So that's what I would suggest to anybody. It's okay to think about and prepare for and be kind of concerned, but to think that you know when it's happening... That's silliness. That's just silliness. Why does God make me feel so full of guilt and shame? I get that one a lot too. I have all this guilt. You don't know my past. And I always answer, well, it's not from God. You got that from Satan. In Colossians, and you, who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Essentially what Paul is telling us is that all the people that try to speak that wickedness in you about your past, they bring up all the stuff from the past, that's people who have been triumphed by Christ who are still trying to keep their claws in you, specifically the devil himself that there's so many people taken out of the fight for the kingdom of God because they feel like their past can't ever be washed away. And the very words of God say, no, it's been nailed to the cross. The legal demands, that means you've been pardoned. It's as if it never, it's not as if it never happened, but it's been happened and been forgiven. You don't deserve the pardon, you've been forgiven. So when you feel small 
and less than and unequal and unable. That's not coming from God. You don't ever have to walk around saying, I feel guilt and shame from God. It's a lie. It's a lie. God himself says you're free. So why would you ever live in that guilt and shame? It's craziness. It's unbiblical. So if you just went to someone who said, hey, I'm feeling a lot of guilt over what I did five years ago. Um, I've, I've been free. I, I'm, I'm saved. Like I, I believe I have a relationship with Christ. I know it's true. I know it's there. But I just keep feeling this guilt from God. And you look them with loving eyes and say, it's not from God. You open up the word because you could just look at them as a friend and go, there's no more guilt for you. And you're like, oh, thanks. You're a good friend. Thank you for that. And instead, you open up the very word of God and go, listen, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take them to Romans 8.1. There's none for you. That's way more hope-filling than you just saying, you're a good person and gosh darn it, I like you. The word of God speaks so much more truth. How about this question? Well, everything's blowing up all around me. Well, we already heard, said it before. Jesus says, don't be anxious about things. He's got it in control. He's sovereign over it all. Now, sometimes I wish he'd ask me for more advice. Because I think I could fix some of this. But I'm not God, and he's not asking. So we have to be free from all that anxiety. Like, I think we're all collectively ready for November 8th to be here and go away. And about half of you in this room will be really happy, and the other half will be really upset. And you know what? We're going to come to church together anyway, and we're going to follow the kingdom of God, and we're going to follow the call of Christ, and we're going to get through all of it. This isn't the first time in this country that people have gone, who are these people, and how could they be presidential candidates? It's not the first time. You know, if you study your history at all, it's not the first time. We're going to get through it. We may be going back to a Roman Empire, but you know what? The church flourished under the Roman Empire. The church flourished. So we shouldn't be anxious about it. Now, do we do our due diligence? Of course we do. As a civics teacher, go vote. Listen to God. Follow the Holy Spirit. Listen to the conviction of God and vote. And your vote might be different than my vote. But as long as you're a Christian and you're a brother and sister in Christ, we'll be okay with that. The rest of them are the same. The market's going to crash. Be ready for it. Power outages. This is Wyoming. Don't we all live this way anyway now? It's starting to get cold. You're a fool if you drive up to the mountains without a blanket, some candles, some extra stuff, an extra battery, a battery pack, some jumper cables, some flares, you know, a whole tent, a heating system. You know, you're just a fool. If you're going to try to drive the mountains, don't you put chains in the back of the truck? Don't you have? The, aren't you ready for these things? Why? Because you want to be ready for everything. You don't know what's going to happen. You want to be ready. Well, that, it's okay to be prepared. It's okay to be diligent. But if you think that as the world ends, your extra 30-day supply of freeze-dried food is going to get you for the rest of your life, you're crazy. You might stockpile a year worth. Well, guess what? The year's going to come and go. What are you going to do then? It's okay to be prepared. It's okay to be ready but we can't have an anxiety that in my will, in my power, in my effort, I'm going to push back all the darkness that's going to come. That's where anxiety comes from, because you know you're not in control. So the best way to flee anxiety is to understand you're not in control. I'm going to be diligent, I'm going to be wise, but I know that God is in charge of everything. And if he is my savior, no matter what comes my way, I will get the prize of Christ. Make sense? Lastly, are there many ways to heaven? This is an easy one. Now, sometimes you need to build a relationship with someone to have this conversation. We don't clobber people. That's not our way. We don't see Paul do that at, at the Areopagus or Acropolis. I forget where he's at. One of those places. We don't see him do that. We see him use kindness and wisdom and logic, and he shows people the way. But as Christians, we don't have to deal with all of this. We don't have to stress over it. Jesus himself said he's the only way. He's the only way. So if God himself, word and flesh, says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, then everything else is not the way. It's not the way. So you have the keys of truth. 
You know it to be true. But you might need to have a relationship before you can have that conversation. Does that make sense? But as a Christian, don't ever be swayed by all these theories. In the last several years, been, oh, we found the, the lost gospel of Judas. And then you watch how that played over a couple years. Like some person had it stuck in a safety deposit box that was stolen from somebody. And like, that's not even close to being true. Well, this one biblical scholar at some university said this. It was dated. And then like the whole board of, of even outside of biblical archaeology said, no way. That's not even close to being true. But for a season there, oh, we got to throw all the Bible out the window because there's the, the missing gospel of Thomas. Do you remember when all that was going around? The Stigmata movie and Thomas. How about Dan Brown? You remember Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code? And then he went to court because he stole the entire premise from a book called Holy Blood, Holy, I think it was Holy Blood, Holy Cross or something. Some French guys did the historical research and he stole all the research and made a really good, well-written, fictional book. But then when he went to court and he was sued, he's like, I made it all up. It's all fiction. And everybody's brains in the world exploded because they thought they had a conspiracy theory against the church and that's why I can't go and I can't. And he just said, I made it up. It's as believable as Harry Potter. Now, some of you might actually believe Harry Potter, but that's a whole other sermon. And like, but the, he just said he made it up. Well, uh, but, uh, and it really boils down to, I don't, I don't want to submit my life to the truth. I want to be in charge. And instead, God's saying, I am. I'm the one. I made it all. Trust me. Listen to me. To close, some ways, some practical ways on how to talk to people. Um, I, this was, I got from um, a seminary class I took several years ago. That these, this was kind of the, the things you should think about when you're about to preach a sermon, when you're about to open up a text. And it'd be the same for you as you're about to share with someone a piece of scripture. If you think that this is going to help them in their lives, you should run it through these filters. What does this text teach us about God? What truth about God do we have his personality, his character, his attributes that are knowable, his unknowable attributes? Like, What are the things that we can know about God from these, this piece of scripture I'm studying? What, what am I supposed to learn about God in this? About his grace, about his mercy, about justice? What am I supposed to learn about him? What does this text teach us about fallen man? Is this a window into my own sin, into my own depravity? So like when I say, when we look at the passage, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I could extrapolate from that, I don't like that. What is it about us? Like if, if universalism could be true, it'd be a happy day for me. Because as a pastor, that's probably what I worry about the most. One of the things I worry about the most. Does everybody in this room on a Sunday morning have a saving faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you don't, then there's pain and suffering for your eternity. And how do I get you to see the truth of the gospel? How do I add one more piece of kindling to the flame for the Holy Spirit to light on fire? No pastor wants people to suffer for eternity. If they enjoy that, like if you see a gleam in someone's eye when they're talking about hell, like it's going to be great. We're going to know that people are weeping and gnashing teeth and suffering will reign forever for them. Like if they're passionate about that, run. Run. Because a pastor with any heart whatsoever doesn't want anyone to be in that place. Because if I believe that's true in this word, then I don't want my worst enemies to suffer like that. And so I'm going to look at that piece of scripture and say, what's it say about fallen man? It says in my heart, when I read that piece of scripture, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, there's a part of my heart that doesn't want to believe that. But thankfully, he's shown me a long time ago that the word is inerrant and it's true and every word of it is believable and I can't deny it. So I can't be there. I have to tell people he's the way, the truth, and the life. But it shows a, a part of my sinful heart that I don't want that to be true. It's very unloving. Because what happens is if I don't believe that's true, then I'm less apt to share the truth with you. And that's one of the most unloving things we can do. The opposite of that isn't like the opposite of love isn't unlove, it's hatred. So if I love you, then I'm going to share the truth with you. But if I hate you, I'm not going to share the truth with you because I want you to go suffer. What do I want my people to know? What I want the person I'm talking to, if it's a church, what I want, what I want my congregation to know. Or if I'm sitting down with person one-on-one and drinking coffee, what I want them to know about this piece of scripture. 
What do they need specifically to hear from this? What do I want my people to do? So if we're talking about the preaching of God's word and we're talking about the power of God's word, what do I want my people to do? I want you to love God's word. And I know that can be small ways, but I want you to love God's word. Even if you find yourself going weeks without cracking open your Bible yourself, I want you to love God's word. So even if it takes getting pushed or something happens, you're going to run to the word to find the answers. I want you to love God's word. And lastly, how does this text point to Jesus? Every piece of scripture has the, the thin veil, at least, or the very overt name of Jesus woven with, within it. Now, some passages, you can't just go, well, that's all about Jesus, because it's not. Like, you can't put him where he's not. But they all lead to the promise of him, the why we need him, why he's sufficient and this author wasn't, you know, why David wasn't the best leader ever, but Jesus is. Like, we have ways of seeing that. How do I see Jesus in the text? So then he closes us. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. This is it. Final jeopardy time. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Make it pretty complicated, don't we? I mean, there it is. I'm not saying it's easy, but we sure make it way more complicated than it is. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment for every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. It's a direct revelation that we need to have a faith in God. Now, sometimes fear kind of is turned into this kind of a, a scare word, literally. Like, it doesn't mean that you should be afraid of him. I can't be near him, can't approach him. You should have an awe of him. He's God and you're not. So if we break it down this way, What's the bottom line? Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. I prefer to say trust him. Because I think fear distracts people. So if you go to people and say, you need to have a healthy fear of God, they don't see it that way. They start having pictures of Zeus on a cloud throwing lightning bolts, and right? They start talking about the Inquisition and witches being burned and people being, right? That's when you start seeing fear. That's what you start to believe or you start to see in your mind. So instead... I use the word trust, which I think is actually a little more, a better, I'm not saying the Bible translators got it wrong. I'm just saying I prefer that because the Hebrew word there can be, anyway, trust. Trust him and then obey him. If you trust God, that's faith. You trust God, that's faith in him. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The, the words are synonymous. I trust that his work on the cross saves my soul. Then I obey. You can't tell people to obey without trusting God. You can't walk up to someone who is far from God, wants nothing to do with Jesus, hates the church, doesn't like Christians. You walk up and go, hey, sinner, you got some rules wrong. How's that going to work? They're going to hit you, walk away from you, you're crazy. That's why like the picket signs you'll see around places, maybe they work. and I just can't fathom they ever work. I'm going to put fear-mongering, I'm going to put this up here, talk about how evil and how wrong you are, and instead I should be calling you to hope and trust in Jesus. Tim Keller wrote his book, A Reason for God, and he breaks it down pretty clearly, that you need to get people to have a saving faith in Jesus first. Talk about the love of God, the love of the cross. Don't you know? Like there's a whole way of sharing in evangelistic circles. You've got the bridge diagram and you have the other one, which I prefer, which is two ways to live. It's kind of a way to share the gospel. There's two ways to live on this planet. One is you as Lord of your own life and you ask the person, how's that going for you? How's it going being in charge of your own life? How are your relationships when you're the king of everything? How's it go at work when you tell your boss that you're smarter than him or her? How's that going in school when you're the smartest person in the room and you really aren't, but you tell everyone you are? Like, how's that going for you? When you're lord of your own life and you're selfish and self-centered, how's that going? Uh, I'm kind of depressed and it's kind of bad. Well, there's another way to live, where Jesus is lord of your life. Where the king is lord of your life. Where you submit yourself to him. So you can approach people in different ways, but it always leads to the same concept. Do you trust him for your salvation, for your life, here and in eternity? And if that's true then you want to obey him. You open up the word and you don't just go, I just don't really want to read the book of Hebrews because I'm not following it. 
well, here's this thing I need to get out of my life. I'm, I, I have some issues. I read through 1 Corinthians, and I realize i got some things going on. I read through one of the Gospels, and I realize that my first love isn't Christ. I realize I have all these issues. And so what do you do? You obey him because he's loved you first. You'll hear me, you'll hear, you will hear me say that all the time. And it's intentional, and it's how I believe. That I love God because he loved me first. Because he loves me, I love him. He doesn't need me, but he wants me. That's a much more powerful motivation. When the king of the universe wants me, he doesn't need me for anything, but he wants me. That's powerful. That's how you obey. You trust him first, and you obey him because he loves you. Isn't that a better motivator? Aren't you motivating your relationships out of love more than fear and hate? Or fear and wonder? But you have a solid belief that you're loved. Doesn't that cause us all to flourish? It does. So as we close and we wrap up Ecclesiastes, he tells us the end. And remember who this is. King of Israel. A thousand wives. More money than any of us know what to do with. He's experienced everything that would taste good or feel good. And at the end of his life, what's he say? Trust God and obey his word. Nothing's changed. No matter how good we get or how rich we get or how full of ourselves we get, it's all vanity. What matters is trusting him for our salvation and obeying his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. And I pray that your servant Solomon, who if we're honest, was a total train wreck. This guy was a mess. A man after your own heart, a man who was wise and given wisdom by you, a man who led with all wisdom for a season, and he threw it all away when he brought false gods into his house and he swayed away from the truth. But thankfully, Lord, you never gave up on him. At the end of his life, he came back to his senses and he came back to his awe and his obedience of your word, and he writes this last letter that we get to read today. So, Lord, that gives me a a great... um, hopefulness, that no matter how far I stray, it's never too far. So I pray that everyone in this room would know that. No matter what they've done or wherever they've been, they're not too far from you, Lord. And I pray that you would soften their hearts and open them to the truth, that there's no guilt and shame for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you love them right where they're at. Amen.